0: Hello, Marvelites. Welcome to another
1: episode of This Week in Marvel. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Marvel's Agent M, joined by Ben Morse, Marvel.com's editor. It's very enthusiastic. This Week in Marvel. Well, yeah, this man. I'm excited. This is one of my favorite podcasts to do. Sure. We are excited because we have one of our favorite guests. We should note that after we had you on the last time, we got some of our best feedback we've ever had. Yeah. Talking to Marvel historian Peter Sanderson, who's in the room with us, so we don't go too far without introducing you. <laughs> but yeah, we after we published the Golden Age uh, podcast, I, you can back me up on this, Ryan. That was like some of the most universally positive, yeah. like, please do that again feedback yeah. we got since I we think doing this. I think people would be happy if we did every single year yeah. as an episode <laughs> with you, which...
2: It's a
0: little bit past our scope for this. Yeah, you're yeah. nodding, Peter, but yeah. we appreciate that. But yeah. that, that is great. We're very excited to keep doing this. Yeah, we've
1: done about... What have we... We've done 129 of these normal ones and very many other ones, and this is probably one of the most popular ones. So, kudos to you. Hi, thank you. Welcome back. And today, we have gotten even more, uh, an even more fertile period to talk about. Today, we're going to get into what we're calling uh, the birth of the Marvel Universe, really. Uh, we're going to touch a little on the 50s, because uh, that's where we left off, and then get right into the, uh, the 60s, the decade of the 60s, where Marvel really exploded. Um, so I guess just to put a bow on the pre-Marvel years, Sonny, I mean you wanted to talk about a little bit about how you know, when we left off, Timely had transitioned into Atlas, and now there's a few years before Atlas transitions into what will become Marvel. You want to talk about that? Right, for a it's few basically minutes. the
3: decade of the 1950s. Because right. 1950 is when Captain America lost his own title. Yeah. And the Marvel superheroes had pretty much disappeared. Of course, Marvel back then wasn't really called Marvel, even though the first superhero book they put out was Marvel Comics Number 1. Yeah. It was timely. In the 50s, the name would be mostly known by as Atlas. And this is a period that really doesn't ha- have. Did make a big impact. I think Stanley Lee himself has said that they were basically just trying to turn product out, and there weren't there weren't that many high points. There are some enduring characters from this period. There's the original Black Knight there's the yellow claw mm-hmm. there are the various characters who we now know as the agents of Atlas mm-hmm. although they most of them were pretty minor at the time yeah, right you have some interesting things going on like Dan DiCarlo doing Millie the model during yeah. this period is before, awesome before, sort of sort of learning how to do this stuff before then he goes <laughs> off to Archie and yeah. revolutionizes that company yeah and it's uh,
1: crazy to look at those old Millie the model covers that look exactly like Archie covers yeah
3: and you do have an attempt mm-hmm. from late 1953 into early 1955 to revive Marvel's big three superheroes mm-hmm. from the 40s, Captain America, the Human Torch, and the Submariner, and it does not work. Yeah. And sort of most infamously in the case of Captain America, he turned into this this fervent cold warrior. Yeah. That the that the villains were now the the communists, and even the Red Skull was a communist. Yeah. and it, Years later, Steve Engelhardt and others would establish that that was a fake cap, that right. was a fake Red Skull, because uh, by that point the the sort of the sort of nineteen fifties anti-communist fervor had begun to look, look extremist and mm-hmm. embarrassing. Well, it did to to people in the fifties too, but uh, to a lot of them, but the superhero revival just did not take off in the fifties at atlas Mm -hmm. now a few years later right now the superheroes had pretty superhero fan had pretty much died at the end of the forties with only dc's big three continuing to get published in their own titles but it was in the 1956 Mm -hmm. that dc succeeded in Mm -hmm. relaunching the superhero genre with editor Julie Schwartz revising and revamping and The Flash mm-hmm. in showcase number four. And he did something that Stan and Company had not done when they pr- tried bringing back the superheroes just a f- few years before, which was that he reimagined them. He came up with a new version of The Flash mm-hmm. that's, that uh, was a more sophisticated art style than you'd get in the Golden Age that had stronger ties to science fiction uh, which was getting increasingly popular with the young readership mm-hmm. than the old flesh did um, and you see this even more so when Schwartz went on to, re- to come up with a new version of Green Lantern mm-hmm. and so this set the so once again superhero the superhero genre was beginning to thrive again and when and legendarily when, when Julie Schwartz's came up with the triumph of turning the old Justice Society of America reimagining that as the Justice League mm-hmm. that was such a hit that public Marvel publisher Martin Goodman told Stanley, you know, we should have a superhero team book. Mm-hmm. And that's where it all began.
0: Before we get to back to the superheroes, there was a lot of like monster stuff oh, yeah. going on. And I think even some of that is carried over because we, you know, Groot in his original sort of is slightly different from what we'll see in the film. We had Groot and Thin Fang Foom yes. and some other
3: characters. So what happens is actually Marvel slash Atlas sort of in a way, sort of hits bottom around 1958, hmm. because that's around that's the time that um, it's not. You get different very, varying accounts of what exactly happened, but it seems as if at the, at one point the entire Marvel staff consisted of just Stan, yeah. and that he, he didn't have any work to give to the artists. Cause Martin Goodman was just saying, "Use up what inventory you've got," right. and however it's around this time that kirby comes back Um, jack kirby had been the partner of joe simon and they had joe simon had been editor-in-chief at the start of the forties that's when they created captain america and then they left for dc and the simon kirby partnership had gone on for years at various companies producing a lot of wonderful comics but simon and kirby eventually had an amicable breaking up of the partnership and kirby found himself back at Marvel and for that matter there was another major artist who had arrived at Marvel and that was Steve Ditko and again science fiction had become as you can tell from movies of the period for example had become popular with the new young audience much more so than it had been in the 40s and something that characterizes Atlas in the 50's is they're trying all sorts of different genres you know whatever it, they can find find that might get an audience and so they move into science fiction and Tales of the Supernatural and so you have books like Strange Tales and Tales of Suspense and Tales to Astonish and um, Amazing Fantasy where Stan is collaborating with Jack Kirby and with Steve Ditko on all these science fiction stories some of which have a little bit of a Twilight Zone feel, mm-hmm. which fits the period. Right. And also, you know, this is a period when you're starting to get all these big monster movies. You've got Godzilla. You've got Coming Over from Japan. You've got, you've got, you know, American low-budget science fiction movies with these giant anim- insects and such. And so they're do- so. Stan and Jack and uh, uh, others are doing all these monsters, most famously Fen Fang Foom. Hmm. and this um, and by this time we're in the early 60s and yeah. it's in the early it's like 1961 that the ne- name Marvel begins to appear on the books right. instead what of was, Atlas I
1: was going to ask, what, what was the first Marvel comic, do you know? I if anyone would you would
3: I uh, I looked this up and I believe that at the start, if we're not counting like Marvel Comics, no, Marvel right. Mystery the Comics one back one in the golden age, but in the si- early 60s, apparently the f- there, uh, I think one of them was one of the anthology books, and one of them was a Patsy Walker. I think okay. the same month, they both had wow. Marvel as a logo.
1: So they switched over to the name Marvel before the Fantastic Four came about.
3: Because, after all, it did have a history yeah. at the company.
1: Yeah, because I think there was always, I think, to me at least, there's always a perception that Fantastic Four number one is the first Marvel comic. But well, technically, it's, it's
3: not. No, it's not the first one to have the logo or... The, well, but, it's the, but of course, it is where the Marvel age of comics right. so-called begins, and it is the start of something, um, something new, and it might as well be the first Marvel comic.
1: Right, right. So Fantastic Four number one, Stanley and Jack Kirby, they do what Martin Goodman had instructed. They introduce a superhero team. But it's unique in that it's not really a superhero team right at the start. They don't have costumes. They don't behave like the Justice Society or the Justice League. They're very different, um, and that and I, seems like that seems like kind of a diversion from. I want to say Goodman's usual style, which was you know take what works and kind of do the same. This seemed very different. Was that a, was that a Stan thing? Was that a Jack thing? Was where did that come well,
3: from? Well, the, the impetus I think is Stan, right? Because again, and this is a story that has, has become legend. Right. But, but I I think that I believe it because it seems to me psychologically acute, which is that. If you look... At Stan has said in interviews that you know, he, had been, he had been doing comics since he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. That's when he started at Marvel and to his own surprise, probably, you know, when Simon Kirby left, he became the editor. Right. And he had, so he had been there now for, close, for 20 years, ever since he was a teenager. He was pushing 40. Mm-hmm. And it was a bit... But he had always wanted to be the great American novelist. Yeah, of course. Which is why he chose this, why Stanley Lieber picked this pen name of Stanley, because he didn't. Want, when he became Stanley Lieber, the great novelist, yeah. he didn't want people to know he had been <laughs> writing Good comics. Weekend, yeah, yeah. And he he says in interviews how you know this is, I think younger readers may find this hard to believe, hmm. but comics was so looked down upon. Hmm. And especially in the 50s, when you had a government investigation of comics, when Dr. Wertham was saying that they caused juvenile delinquency, so there was such a belief that comics were for only for kids, and they were for dumb kids or for delinquent kids. And Stan says that when he was at parties, and people asked him what he did for a living and say, well I'm a writer and if mm-hmm. they press well I do uh, children's books yeah. and, <laughs> like, and you really had to push together to admit it was comics because that was okay. something he did not want to say so we get to Stanley in 1961 again pushing 40 and feeling as if you know like the, this first phase of his life
2: mm-hmm.
3: he hasn't really gotten anywhere mm. and when Goodman comes to him with says, "Well, we got to start a superhero team book." He's on the verge of quitting comics altogether, mm. and his wife Joan tells him, "Well, why don't you do the kind of comics that you'd want to read yourself?" Mm. And it seems that Goodwin, Goodman was giving him enough leeway, yeah. so that as long as he came up with a superhero team book, you know, he could pretty much he had sort of a certain amount of freedom to do what he wanted, mm-hmm. and so he. Stan and gets together with Kirby, and they do the Fantastic Four, which, as you say, is revolutionary. They're not in costumes, and not, and as pointed out, it, the, the book pretty much opens with them quarreling. Yeah,
1: they don't get the, along. the
3: Justice League, you know, despite what, despite the New Fifty Two version of the Justice League where, <laughs> where they hate each other, the, the original version of the Justice League. Well we're, we're all the same business. We're all we've all basically got the same personality at yeah. this point. <laughs> we're all friends. We get along fine. Whereas the Fantastic Four, you know, they they were uh, right for the start, I mean some of Johnny and Sue were actually related by blood, but it was a dysfunctional family from mm-hmm. the start. And it's um And Ben, especially, has a particularly hot tempo that you're not used to seeing in a superhero comic. Now, one reason they don't have costumes is because people have pointed out the similarities for the early FF2, Kirby's Challenges of the Unknown at DC, Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of teams in comics at that point who were sort of like teams, they weren't superheroes, but they were teams of adventurers. Yes, right. Rip Hunter, Time Master, Cave Carson. And so forth at DC, and this in turn reflects the, reflects the kind of uh, heroes that you, scientist heroes that you'd see in the science fiction movies of the time. You know, right. reads one of these guys, scientists who's smoking a pipe like those guys do, and um, and also one of the big revolutionary things, and this ties into what Marvel had just been doing with finfang Fang Foom and company, is that. Well, first of all, the first Fantastic Four story is a monster story. It's the Mole Man's monsters. And and the Mole Man is sort of this mad scientist with this this underground kingdom, and that Mm -hmm. sort of fits into the science fiction comics and movies of the period. Um, And in the the next issue, you have the Skrulls, aliens from outer space. And pretty soon after that, you get the, the original Miracle Man, not... Not the British version, right. but a guy who's creating this, you know, who, who's creating, seemingly creating monsters to come to, come to life. So, I mean, Stan and Tark are tying this very into the monster books that they already know will sell. Mm-hmm. But one of the big revolutionary things in it that I don't think gets enough attention is one of the heroes is a monster. Right, yeah, yeah. And he's a, he's a re- grotesque looking monster, and he's one with a bad temper. He's got a hot temper. You know, he's sort of like the Hulk before the Hulk yeah. when he first starts out, and this seems to me, um, if you were a comic book reader at the time, this would be amazing. There is no real precedent for this mm-hmm. at DC or a Timely Atlas Marvel, and this. I mean, now you you look at it and you say, you say like, what, what's the big deal? Like the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, where you know, like half of them are. are uh, a sort of odd and strange looking, yeah. but at the time, this would have been astonishing yeah. that you've got a, mon- a comic where a-, a monster is helping the- helping the the heroes fight other monsters, yeah. and the fact that this is a monster that, you know, Stan talks when when he talks about how creating the Hulk about. Uh, the Frankenstein monster is portrayed by Boris Karloff as being one of the influences, but this was a monster who you, the thing was another monster who you sympathized with, whom you liked, who you, who you can identify with as an outcast. And of course, this is another one of the big deals about Marvel comics is that even though the Fantastic Four, you know, by issue two they are already apparently world famous. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, in the first issue, nobody knows who they are. And when they come out in public, who's that? What's that? But by issue two, they're world famous. But Ben is already something of an outcast. When he appears on the street, people are drawback. Right. What is this? And actually, by issue two, they start out by being world famous, but the Skrulls, by impersonating them, turn the world against them. And yeah. so the whole team becomes outcast for the rest of the issue. And this, too, is a big deal in in the superhero genre, that doesn't really have precedence.
0: What was the... Um, where did Stan come up with the power set? Or was it Stan and Jack together? Because, you know, it's like the earth, wind, fire... At least that's what it always seemed like. You know, he's got this elemental angle to the powers. And then I always found it curious where, those, where he devised that.
3: You know, Stan is not a student of mythology, really. Mm-hmm and I t- tend to think of Kirby as being an intuitive genius mm-hmm. and so I don't think they really th- realized that, they were, that these were, they were modeling these four characters yeah. after the powers of the elementals. Yeah. I mean, as for the Human Torch, I mean, that was sort of like oh, the Human Torch was one of our stars, so let's create a new version of the Human Torch following the lead, presumably, of Julie Schwartz, who was creating new versions mm-hmm. of other Golden Age DC heroes um, So I think that this is an example of Stan and Jack at this period were just sort of like somehow tapping into these myths mm. intuitively, subconsciously. Yeah. That this, this was a sign of what a great creative period the 60s was for the two of them. Yeah. That they just hit upon this. And I, th- I don't think they re- knew, any, knew that these, they were doing the elementals, but there it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, fire for the torch, earth for, for the thing. Air for, for, for Sue who's invisible and Reed. Well, it's sort of like that's a little bit of a harder match. said right. like, Well, the body sort of floats. But <laughs> yeah. But it's more likely, as Roy Thomas sort of hinted in a, broadly in a later comic, he, where he suggested that maybe Reed had been reading a Plastic Man when he was growing <laughs> up.
1: You mentioned the Hulk as you were talking about Fantastic Four. The Hulk today is one of the more iconic characters associated with Marvel. He's right up there, probably in the, in the top five. Especially, I know internationally, the Hulk's one of the biggest deals. Mm-hmm. Interesting to me is that the Hulk was not, in his own series at least, a breakaway hit right away. No. Most of these characters who are introduced, and already by the time you're to 62 in the Hulk, you're already seeing you know, Ant-Man and Thor and some of the other characters. But the Hulk got six issues of his own series, and then he was out. And immediately became a pretty popular guest star for several years. Um, so I was always curious about that, why the Hulk didn't work in his own book, but then he seemingly, it didn't take long for him to work in a different kind of role.
3: My guess is that it's, again, it's because of how revolutionary and different these early concepts were. Mm-hmm. That, you know, with the Fantastic Four, you've got one team member who's a monster, but he's monster on the good guy's side. But you take the Hulk, mm-hmm. which Stan says was inspired, inspired by a combination of Karloff's Frankenstein, the sympathetic monster and Jekyll and Hyde Mm. but the Hulk is, this is the central figure figure of this series, is a monster and he's not and again this sort of ties into the monster books that Marvel had been doing but this is the monster who is the central figure, whose adventures you follow it's not a story about this guy who's trying to uh get rid of Fin Fang Foom, mm. where the hero is not the monster. Mm. And he's, he's an anti-hero because he's obviously a potential threat. He has this terrible temper. The army is out to get him. And he can e- he can just as easily turn against you or fight the army as he can against whatever other menaces arise in the book. Now, in the course of those six issues, you can see that Stan and Jack and Ditko are going back and uh, you're experimenting with this concept and he seems the Hulk seems much more of a potential menace in the first book than, he, than the second book he's up against the Toadman aliens mm-hmm. from space again
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, so now we've got the idea let's pit this monster against menaces that are seemingly worse whether it's the Gargoyle in the first book or the Toadman or Tyrannus and by the sixth issue the Ditko is drawing and presumably co-plotting Uh, he's fighting another alien, the Metal Master and the Hulk is now sort of like an outright hero Mm. and the Hulk's intelligence level seems and personality seems to be varying in this book as again Stan is trying all these different things but I think that the idea of so it may be that the the readers first of all might have been startled by the idea of a monster who is in fact the anti-hero of the series, they're not used to this this is such a revolutionary concept, and then maybe it's sort of, a, and maybe Stan and company are you know, experimenting so much in these early issues that the the character, that the readers can't quite get a hold on who this character is supposed to be. But it only lasts six issues, and well, did he become a popular guest star? He became a popular guest star because Stan made him popular <laughs> guest star, because Stan and Jack obviously liked the Hulk. Yeah. And so he's in, he's in The Avengers, he's in The Fantastic Four. They knew that they had something. Yeah. And eventually, he get, when he gets into Tales to Astonish, mm-hmm. by that point, Stan and Ditko and Kirby, you know, again, contributing to stor- different stories, at that point they seem to get what we now think of as the classic Hulk. Mm-hmm. The Hulk with the, sort of the, low, the the Hulk who says things like Hulk smash. The Hulk mm-hmm. with the so much lower intelligence than Banner. The uh, who basically just want, with a terrible temper, but basically just wants to be left alone. That you, you know, you don't attack him, he won't attack you.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And he only seemingly goes after people who hurt him first, or who deserve it, like the Leader.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And that's the Hulk that stuck with the readers, and that's the Hulk that, as you know, for the next next 20 years or so before mm-hmm. we get uh, John Byrne and, and then more importantly Peter David playing around with the concept. Of course Peter David is also sort of harkening with his bringing back the Grey Hulk mm-hmm. he's sort of hearkening back to the Hulk of the very early stories when he was still when he was talking quite differently under the, in the first issues he seemed to be more intelligent and famously he was grey in the first issue yeah. Because, uh, again, people didn't, you know, continuity didn't matter as much back then. And so Stan said, well, let's change the color to green in the second issue. And, you know, it wouldn't be until we've got people who, people like me, who, uh, <laughs> who start regarding this stu- stuff as holy writ, who say, why did he change color? Yeah. I mean, because when you do retellings of the Hulk's origin,
2: mm-hmm.
3: after Hulk, Incredible Hulk number one, he was always green from the start. Yeah. That's not till I think Byrne, I think it was Byrne who established that. No, he really was Greg in the first story.
1: After that, not long after the Hulk, I think I'm getting this chronologically right. You can correct. I'm sure you will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, We get Spider-Man. Spider-Man famously shows up in the last issue of Amazing Fantasy. Spider-Man was very different because he was the first teenage character who was not, you know, a Robin who wasn't a Kid Flash. He was his own character. He was not a kid sidekick. Um, How much of that is on on the level as far as the creation of Spider-Man? Where did Spider-Man come from? And how did he really, he really, how quickly did Spider-Man become almost the mascot of Marvel? Like, the guy front and center on the envelopes, on everything else?
3: I'll try to imagine when I look at Amazing, the first Spider-Man story, what would it have been like to see this in 1962? Mm -hmm. And Now, as you pointed out, one of the the revolutionary things about Spider-Man is that, to put it differently, he wasn't Spider-Boy. He wasn't a kid sidekick. And Robin and Kid Flash and Bucky Hmm. and Toro, so many of these kid superheroes were kid sidekicks. I mean, a major example being when Jerry Siegel turned flipped it around with the star-spangled kid in Strikesy mm-hmm. yeah. and had the r- young rich kid with, the, with his b- adult bodyguard as mm-hmm. his sidekick. But that was sort of, that was sort of like dependent on you. On, that, that was like a joke yeah. that he was dependent on you knowing about all the kids' sidekicks. Yeah. But the thing about this, which was revolutionary, was that this was Stan treating a teenager, a teenage superhero as independent, as mature enough to be able to have a career on his own, be, to be beset with the problems that would, problems that adults would find difficult to deal with. And he's much younger and has to deal with this. He's just sort of thrown into this uh, by a, by acts of fate. And this obviously had tremendous appeal to, I mean, the I, like when I was growing up, yeah, I know that the whole point of creating Robin for Batman was to... Well, I think Jerry Robinson said one of the reasons for it was to give Batman someone to talk to. Mm. <laughs> but, it was, but it was also, you know, the idea was that kid, kids would identify with Robin. You want to be Robin as Batman's sidekick going along in the adventures. And that never worked for me when I was growing up because I don't want to bother with a sidekick. I want to be Batman, you know. Yeah. It's like, so the, this, this had... Spider-Man being a hero, a hero, who, a teenager who was acting like an adult hero, mm-hmm. who had that kind of independence and sense of resp- power and responsibility, mm-hmm. that were, obviously would have had tremendous appeal for kids at that time, the sort of thing that would make, you know, you sort of wonder why they didn't think about it at, D- at DC or the other comics companies before this, because now it seems like such an obvious idea, but somebody had to come up with it first.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And another thing that really strikes me about this story is that if I had seen if I had seen it in 1962 in Amazing Fantasy 15, the last issue of Amazing Fantasy, though I don't know if readers would have known that at the time, mm. but it's like would you even have realized that this this was going to go on as a continuing series because it seems like. The first one is such a change from all superhero stories that have come before because this is a story, story about a guy who gets superpowers and his first thought is not, let's go help people. No, no, Stan you know. is being realistic here and Cole they're being realistic here. His idea is, let's make money, let's get famous, let's become a TV star. Although he's sort of Inhibited enough and repressed enough that he doesn't want to go out in public and say it's me, Peter Parker, the, mm-hmm. the weakling bookworm, uh, the, the outcast at my high school. You know, he's still sort of ashamed. That's that, that's real. You know, it's like one of the things about Peter Parker and Spider-Man is that it's Clark Kent and Superman, but for real. Because yeah. traditionally, Superman only pretends to be timid, cowardly Clark, mild-mannered Clark Kent. Peter Parker Spider-Man really was bookwormish outcast mild-mannered Peter Parker and and so and there's the still this division in his mind so that but it's sort of like he doesn't want to admit publicly that he's Peter Parker as if he's still embarrassed about that but by putting on the mask and becoming Spider-Man he can lo- let loose you know everything that he, he wa- always wanted to do but he was too afraid to and so Spider-Man man actually becomes you know, egotistical. The glory harm that J. Jonah Jameson would later accuse him of being. Mm. And that's why, of course, he lets the burglar go away, because it's none of my business. I'm a TV star. <laughs> it's not my job to chase criminals. Mm. And, but when you get to the end of the story, where his, his uncle, who is in effect his father, mm-hmm. the guy, the, the only real father he's, figure he's known, is killed by the burglar, and Spider-Man is driven by this need to avenge his uncle's death, catches up with the burglar, and then finds out, that this, realizes this is the guy that he let go. Mm-hmm. This is, in effect, the hero realizing that he is responsible for his surrogate father's death. Mm-hmm. And this is... And... Now, we know from years and years of Spider-Man stories after this that this is what motivates him <laughs> to be Spider-Man, to fight crime, to do whatever he can to prevent other people from suffering tragedies like this. But that first story ends up with Spider-Man discovering his own guilt for Uncle Ben's death and just walking, al- walking into the background in that iconic Ditko shot, you know, f- feeling covered with guilt that he can never expiate and would you Has had anybody seen a superhero story like this before
2: mm-hmm.
3: did readers look at this did they have any expectation that this character was going to come back and become Marvel's most beloved hero right. I mean this is such a dark story and I think you look you try to look at it with fresh eyes even now and it is such a dark and such a great and such a revolutionary story
2: yeah.
3: I mean I was thinking of this, this just occurred to me yesterday when I was thinking about you know, coming here to do the interview yeah. today. It even reminds me of Oedipus, because oh, yeah. it's, it's like et, the myth of Oedipus, and again, Stan probably had no I- idea, <laughs> neither did Ditko probably, but they probably had heard the story, but they, pro- they didn't th- probably didn't realize they were doing this, but the, part of the story of Oedipus is that he kills an old man and only finds out later that that was his his father, and that's right. one of the reasons he ends up blinding himself, right. trying to expiate something that can't be expiated. Right. And it's, again, it shows Stan and his collaborators in this period. They are somehow tapping into this, yeah. the collective unconscious yeah. and coming up with these amazing mythic concepts.
1: That was the second time you mentioned myth, and in a 180 from what uh, Stan and Steve were doing with Spider Man you then go over to what Stan and Jack do with Thor, which is rooted in mythology mm-hmm. and not so much science. Now we're getting more into the, you know, more not so much ma- somewhat magic, the more magic realms. Was Thor an attempt to just, you know, diversify the line a little bit? Or is it just another, you know, we've got more ideas beyond just these victims of science? Because when you look at, you know, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Hulk, Ant-Man, all either victims or just circumstances of science gone wrong. Thor, completely different. An actual god having adventures on Earth.
3: Well, there's a couple of things to say here. Oh, but before I should answer one question that Mm. we let slide, which is how fast did Spider-Man become? I top hero, and obviously it happened really, really fast, Right. because it's like, I think within just a couple of years, you've got Spider-Man annual, you've got Spider-Man guest starring, you've got you've uh, got got Spider- you know, Spider-Man merchandise. It's got so it, it, it really, and I think that's because of the appeal of the idea of the teenager with problems, problems with, like real teenagers would have, but having the, but having to deal with them himself, having to try to be an adult, going through sort of thing teenagers do. But of course, in his case, on a grander scale because yes, he has the superhero stuff to deal with, yeah. and I think also the series while Stan managed to create, find this balance between the darkness and the soap operatics although at his best they, they weren't hackneyed at all mm. and Stan's great sense of wit and comedy because mm. Sp- Spider-Man is also Marvel's great trickster hero he, I, long, long ago when I was just starting to write about comics I did a, a, a column about Bugs Bunny and Spider-Man mm. that they are, because they have a lot in common because yeah, they're, they're, they're tricksters who, you know, a typical stand and sp- stand fight between Spider-Man and Doc Ock or the Vulture or whatever, you know, the villain is just just blathering on and on uh, uh, with these big words and these highfalutin' threats, and Spider-Man's just undercutting him with jokes. Right. Um, but as for Thor, you know, when you say that uh, these guys were guy's got superpowers by accident. That's Mm -hmm. true of the Fantastic Four. It's true of the Hulk. It's true of Mm Spider-Man. And the original concept of Thor, it's true of Thor. Because because originally, Stan and Jack and Larry Lieber, who scripted the first story, it's Dr. Don Blake, the, Mm -hmm. the crippled doctor from America who's vacationing in Scandinavia who, when he runs into these aliens, the stone men from Saturn, and, again, ties into the Marvel science fiction books of the early 60s. And he runs into the cave, and he finds that strange wood, wooden cane and pounds, tries to get out of the cave, pounds it against the cave wall, and he becomes Thor. And this is seemingly by sheer accident. Hmm. And it's because... And it's seemingly an ordinary guy who, just by pure chance, has become endowed with these powers of a mythic god. Now, years later, Stan and Jack turned this around, in part because by that time they had done so many stories about Thor, you know, having adventures in the past, Tales Mm. of Asgard and so forth. Uh, You know, Thor having been around for centuries that they, they said, well, how do we explain this? And so they decide that it was... Act, that The real explanation was that Odin was punishing Thor for arrogance, as if Odin should talk. And, <laughs> and turn so, Thor into a human being on Earth with no memory of his godly identity, Don Blake.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And who eventually gets the hammer back and becomes Thor once again. Now if you look at the very earliest superhero stuff stories in the late thirties th- and the early forties some of these g- creators knew what they that they were doing mythology because you know like you know the parallels between between um, Superman's origin and Moses have been much remarked upon the fact mm-hmm. that Cal-El that El El's name signifies that of the name L signifies the divine in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at the the Flash, who the original Flash, who has Mercury's winged helmet. The mm-hmm. Submariner has the wing the wings on his heels, just like Mercury. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like uh, Captain Mar. The original Captain Marvel got his got his powers from mostly from sure the gods. gods yeah. It's like so. It's like they. People in the earliest 40s, and and Jack Kirby of course was doing gods, real early on. There's a, one of the early t- timely heroes is supposed to be the son of Thor. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that might be Hurricane, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and there's all, and he also did a did stories about Mercury, mm-hmm. the god Mercury, who later writers turned into Makari yeah, the yeah, Eternals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but you know Kirby was doing this right along. He was always interested in this sort of thing. So it makes sense that, now, again, was it Stan's idea to do do Thor? Was it Jack's idea to do Thor? But in any event, we don't know, but in any event, they collaborated. Obviously, they were trying to expand the line because they were coming up with, you know, the superheroes were working for them. The FF was a success. The Hulk wasn't a success at first. But, you know, and they could see that DC was being successful with superheroes. So, again, they're trying to compete. But I think it's it's far-seeing of Stan and Jack to want to vary the line enough so they're not just doing science fiction heroes to try something else, to try this hero who has this mythological background whose powers are, in effect, supernatural. Mm -hmm. And I think now that we've got the Marvel movies coming out, which in a way is sort of like Repeating what happened in the early 60s, where sure. first we have one character introduced and then another, and then we start to tie them together. Yeah. And we see that with the Marvel movies now, Marvel Studios is trying to do a different kind of genre with each movie, so that you know they, after we had something that was like high tech with Iron Man, we have then they they do the Thor movie, bringing in the mythic. Now we've got. The new Captain America movie is like a political thriller. The Guardians of the Galaxy movie is going to be, is is a space opera. I mean, so again, they're following the pattern that Stan set, and let's try to move in different directions. And of course, this is also the building of a Marvel universe, which we should talk about too.
1: So we'll roll on, and we're going to get to the Marvel universe one. I figured we would uh, keep hitting the big characters, and then we'll we'll finish with talking about uh, the Loop of the Marvel. Universe. So we'll go right back into it. Sure. So another character debuts around this time, kind of the last of the uh, the major solo characters. There are other ones. There are ones we're going to touch on. But the last of the major solo characters debut in those early years is Iron Man. Mm. Um, and Iron Man's interesting to me because you'd had certainly most prominently with Batman, but with other characters, there had been that trope of the, the millionaire, the, uh, the wealthy man who decides to fight crime. But in a lot of cases... Um, once they become a hero the business aspect kind of goes to the wayside with iron man you had someone who there's a lot of stuff to iron man a lot of stuff to the origin a lot of stuff to the heart condition and all that but it's something really interesting interested me very much is that to this day the businessman millionaire aspect has never gone away that's always been as much a part of tony stark as iron man is which makes him especially in the movies stand out to me from you know a Batman or another character like that.
3: Sure, I mean sometimes I think with Batman it's like I think Steve Englehart is one of the few writers who actually emphasized Batman at Bruce Wayne as sort of Captain of Industry because more more often you sort of he's sort of like like Lucius Fox from things and and he's right. sort of like the bored millionaire who right. and that's pl- more the mask. Or playboy. Is, that's the Tony, mask. S- but,
1: Tony Stark is Tony
3: Stark, right? Yeah, and it's like. Um, Although you know, in the in the movies, they've actually in the second movie when he basically turns over the business to Pepper. Yeah. That's actually sort of unlike the Tony Stark yeah. in the comics, who's much who's always been much more focused on Less the business. Much more hands on, yeah. Uh, but one of the things that Downey brought to the role is uh, somebody point out to me that Downey's actually sort of preempted Hawkeye's role yeah. in the Avengers cause yeah, he's the ways. snarky one, yeah. with a, with a sense of humor, uh, and you know, Stark in the movies is sort of. Well, we'll see what happens because he's he's not through the movies yet, but it's sure. but you know he's sort of less involved with the corporate aspect these days. But anyway, uh, yeah, there is a long, long tradition that predates superhero comics because you know the shadow was masquerading as a as a wealthy Lamont Cranston, mm-hmm. and, and you know even before that you had like the Scarlet Pimpernel, mm-hmm. um, Zorro. Yeah. Um, so this is a long, long tradition, and. But you're right. It's usually like this. This is an excuse so that you know they're, they're wealthy enough to be afford, able to afford Batmobiles and things. I guess the Green Hornet was sort of still was a, was a newspaper publisher, publisher, so I guess he had. So I guess his work was important to him. But mm-hmm. for the most part, it's you know this gives them enough money to finance their activities and enough time because they don't actually work at the office to do all this crime fighting stuff. But the difference is that. And this is, again, Stan being brilliant. Hmm. Tony Stark is modeled after Howard Hughes. Right. Who, now, when I was growing up, Howard Hughes was this reclusive freak who was rumored to have really long hair and didn't
2: long, re- fingernails, long fingernails
3: yeah. and, and walked around with tissue boxes on his feet and... That's like and never came out of the hotel, his hotel in Las Vegas, and it's like, if you've seen the movie Melvin and Howard, mm. you know you get a sense of what that was like. But the young Howard Hughes was this sort of dashing figure who was having affairs with all with all these beautiful Hollywood actresses, and he was um, a filmmaker, and he was an aviator, and he was an inventor, and he was a multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. And I've so that's one of the role, that's one of the models for Tony Stark, and another model. And I'm not sure whether this is again whether this is conscious on Stan's part or not. But Stan says in interviews that he um, that his big hero when he was a kid was Errol Flynn, hmm. going to see movies like The Adventures okay. of Robin Hood. And when I look at the way now Stan Jack designed Iron Man's armor. Right. Don Heck um, apparently he designed he Tony Stark yeah. and Tony Stark always looks like Errol Flynn to me and mm. there's a resemblance to the young Howard Hughes too but he really looks like Errol Flynn mm-hmm. so you've got this sort of mergey so it's like Howard Hughes as swashbuckling hero and also now Howard Hughes as I said he's an inventor but another tradition that you've got and again is Stan consciously tapping into this or not but that, like the scholar Jess Nevins who's the one who does all the annotations for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm-hmm. That's his com- big comics connection. But he's also a, stud- a student of Victorian fiction, uh, genre fiction. And he points out there's this tradition of the man with the machine. Mm-hmm. And one of the great examples is Captain Nemo, mm-hmm. the, the guy who invents this futuristic device. Mm-hmm. And also, keep in mind, and this I think Stan was conscious of, because Stan was co-creator of the Black Knight in the fifties. Mm-hmm. You know, what would a modern-day knight, what would a modern-day knight in a modern-day suit of armor be like? So you put all this together and you get Iron Man in his armored suit. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was called, a, if Stan was referring to him as a knight in the earliest stories, but that came it along came, fairly came soon. It came not long after, yeah. And so you've got this combination of factors, and it, that works so well, and as you say it 's like the the Howard Hughes the businessman part always remains a factor, even though there are times when you know how many times by now has you know like Oliver Warbucks and little off and Annie, how often has Tony Stark lost his fortune, sure. lost his company, and had to rebuild it, but he always does because yeah. it's part it 's part of the theme, and it also seems to me that whether by luck or by Stan's insight into this sort of thing, but Tony Stark slash Iron Man is a character who just seems to become renewed in terms of relevance as it goes yeah. along. Because you look at because again, Stan's original model is Howard Hughes, mm-hmm. but when Stan is um, Iron Man comes along and it's the space age. It's like mm-hmm. we've got the race to to outer space, which which is a f- factors in the F versus F F story. Um, we, though, as I, I point out, I think last time they actually Reed is actually trying to beat the Russians into outer space, into outer space to the stars, he says, yeah. not just the moon. I mean, he's got he's got his eyes on something further than that. But it, so kids, uh, kids, and the American public are much more interested in science. Mm-hmm. And it's been pointed out that a lot of Stan's heroes in the early '60s are these scholar heroes, many of whom. Whom are, most of whom are scientists, Reed Richards, Tony Stark, Henry Pym, but you know, you've know also got doctors, like Don Blake and Stephen Strange, you've got a lawyer, Matt Murdock. but these smart people, especially smart people in science. And so Stan is tying into this with Iron Man. And in the early Iron Man stories, there's a lot of talk about transistors, because that's the big deal back right, that was the thing. then. But it seems to me that, you know, the, the better Iron Man writers over the year, like Javier Michelinie was really good at this. What's going on in technology now? Right. and tapping into that. And now it's sort of like, a little later, in, you know, it seems to me that in more recent decades, Tony Stark has become sort of like, what if Bill Gates was a superhero? Sure. yeah. And again, you keep put. and now we're in a, the last 10, 15 years where the, per, the, the computer revolution. It's like the internet revolution. It's like the the public is much more interested in technology than they've been for quite some time. Everybody uses computers, and yeah, so right. it's like once again, Tony Stark seemed, you they just keep making Tony, making Tony. You know, just keep updating, the, upgrading the armor and tapping into the latest developments. Mm-hmm. Always put Tony on the cutting edge. You know, like a step ahead of everybody else. That's the key. You know, it just top. Ties into whatever the new, exciting thing in technology is, and so in a way, Tony Stark, based on Howard Hughes, I mean, his origin takes place in the during the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. before America got fully involved in it, and and it was smart for the comics and the movies to update that to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But it's like, even though he seems so much a part of the early sixties, in fact, he seems like maybe Marvel's most contemporary hero today. Yeah. Yeah, which is, which is I mean, why you match him with the right actor, yeah. and it, Iron Man is such a tremendous success. It made me laugh when I'd read mainstream media articles before the Iron Man movie came out. And, well, this was one of Marvel's lesser known yeah. No, he's one of the Pantheon from the 60s, as anybody who really knows comics knows. But there's a reason he was part of the Pantheon in the 60s. Right. We could go on
1: kind of doing roll call on characters from the 60s probably for hours and hours. And I want to touch on a few more as we go, but let's sure. let's break for a sec to kind of talk about some more concepts and questions mm-hmm. like you mentioned. As you said, by the time... By the time Iron Man... I mean, Iron Man's one of the last kind of big solo heroes. They'll, we'll get more as the years go on, but... I I mean,
3: they're practically all the big ones are created by 64. That's what I was going
1: to say. Like, 63, 64, you're really getting your your nucleus. Like, we still have, you know, Daredevil, Doctor Strange, a couple more to come. But by 63, you've already got enough that you can start forming teams. Mm. The Avengers most prominently. And that also speaks to the fact that these characters, not just the Avengers are starting to interact with each other. They're all existing in the same city. Again, a contrast to what had come before. They're not all in different fictional cities. They're all in New York. And that was another part of what made the Marvel Universe stand out. Speak to me about, a little bit about, as we have talked about it, the birth of the Marvel Universe and how these characters, their villains, which I want to get to, mm-hmm. all kind of coexisted in this shared space and how that made it special.
3: Okay. Now, this is not entirely without precedent because mm-hmm. you do have fights between the Tywin Torch and the Submariner. Sure. In the 40s, you have the All-Winners Squad yep. in the 40s. So, and the idea of superheroes teaming up were, you know, not only had it been done at Marvel, but at Timely, but you had the Justice Society at DC. You mm-hmm. had Superman and Batman becoming teaming up on a regular basis in World's Finest. You have the Justice League. And again, the Fantastic Four came about as a response to the Justice League. But you look at DC, and it's like the the team ups tended to be confined to certain titles. Mm -hmm. Like you saw all these heroes get together in the Justice League book, but how often did you see them get together outside the Justice League? Mm. Superman, Batman met, got together eight times a year in World's Finest, but how often did you know? It was very, very rare for Batman to show up in one of the other Superman comics. Right, and so it was, they were sort of confined. And in part, that's be, I think, in large part, I think that's because at DC you had different editorial domains, mm-hmm. so that Wisego was in charge of the Superman books and the S- Silver Age, and Julie Schwartz had. The Flash and Green Lantern and the Justice League and eventually Batman and other editor had like the Doom Patrol or the Metal Men and it's like, and the editors didn't, weren't motivated to cross over with other editors' books. Now what you've got with the Marvel is that you've got a limited number of books. Right. And actually there were distribution reasons why the Marvel line had to be so limited at mm-hmm. that point. Stan is editing all of them. Yeah. He is writing all of them. Right. Or if he's not writing all of them, then he's plotting them or super or he's supervising the the writer who does do them and it was usually like Larry Lieber, mm-hmm. his brother. And so Stan's got his hands in everything. Jack is drawing a whole lot of the books. And it's like, and so you've got, it's not only are all these characters set in the same city and Stan's doing that because he said, he said in interviews, it made it more real for him to have them in a real place because that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to make, one of the ways in which he's doing comics, as his wife said, that he would want to read, read is yeah. to make, treat the superheroes as if they're real people living in a real place with real problems. That's basically it. And so, they're all in the same city. They've all got the same writer and editor. And so, it may, so it, may, it was, may, it was easy for Stan to stand across these characters over to see what would. It gave him story ideas. What would happen if Thor met the Hulk? Who is stronger? Mm-hmm. It was, um, He could have villains created for one title show up in a different title. Mm-hmm. He could have. Um, he could use books to. Pl- Plug other books so that in Amazing Spider-Man number one, he tries to join the Fantastic Four. Sure. So Fantastic Four readers might try this new Spider-Man book right. if you do not right
1: there on the cover. Yeah. Right.
3: If you're not already reading the, if you pick up Spider-Man, you don't know about the Fantastic Four. There they are. Yep. You know, look at the first Spider-Man annual, and virtually everybody else shows up yeah. in it for a cameo. And of course, when we get to FF Annual three, where the whole ba- yeah. basic Marvel universe shows up.
1: Well, those early Fantastic Fours also just the series became kind of a almost almost like a. I don't know, like, a, like a cross station for different properties to show up because once a new title would be launched they would almost inevitably show up in Fantastic Four at some point. So the that Hulk shows
3: project. up, Ant-Man shows up. Yep,
1: I remember the X-Men showed up pretty early on. Doctor Strange shows up. Yeah, so they all show up in Fantastic Four at some point.
3: And again, it's cross-promotion yep. it's easy it's, it provides all sorts of ideas so it's like a, so they now whether they, again, withstand Stan consciously thinking of creating a Marvel universe. I don't know, but it was but he obviously saw the benefits to interconnection. Mm-hmm. And that's what we got about. And so again, FF Annual number 3, The Wedding of Reed and Sue where everybody shows up. Everybody, yeah, literally
1: the whole Marvel universe to
3: that point. Right. And that... Even the western heroes like Kid Colt show up on yeah. the cover. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Like a, it's like it's like it's like Million Model is in it yeah. shows up in that story. It's like it, it he by that point he knew what he had, and it was a selling point because you know you're trying. DC is trying to sell the whole DC line of comics, but those comics don't interconnect. Right. With the Marvel books, they interconnect, and that also means if you saw a guest appearance by a particular character, you would follow him to his own book. Yeah. And you know, and also, so um, Stan is trying to pioneer crossovers, mm-hmm. so that you do and have a few crossovers in, the, in. In the 60s at Marvel, where a story might there's like a, I was mad this this weekend where there's a there's a like a, a story that Stan and Gene Colan did, although I think Roy actually scripted one one part of it where there's a fight between Iron Man and Samaritan that takes place in both tales, as suspected yes. tales to astonish, yeah. and Stan is also pioneering the continued story, which is a rarity at DC at the time, but you know so you get things like the Galactus trilogy. Yeah. You know, story that's too big for a lot of issue. Yeah. And, uh...
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, no, there's a lot to it, and that's a topic that can be discussed for a while. Tom Brevoort told me a story, and I want to either verify or... I don't want to discredit Tom ever, but, you know. I want to I hear if this is the real deal, is that he said Avengers, the series, at least in part, Came about because Daredevil was scheduled to ship, and it ran into some sort of scheduling difficulties, and they needed to fill a hole in the schedule, so they came up with Avengers, which was, in a way, they're even more so than Fantastic Four. They're Justice League, yeah, putting all the major characters in one book. Have you ever heard that
3: one? I've heard. I heard this story recently. Mm -hmm. I find it a little hard to believe because Avengers came out in 63 and Daredevil right. came out in 64. That's right. an awful long gap.
1: Yeah, Tom said there was major problems on Daredevil, but hmm. I don't know. It's it worth it's worth looking into. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. It's
3: it's possible, but yeah. I mean, Avengers obviously was a good idea and it, sure. was, it was, I feel like it would it have, have happened probably, at some
1: point no matter what.
3: And it was sort of like it was closer to, you know, when Martin Goodman told Stan to create a response to the Justice League. I right. mean, I don't know. Did Goodman have in, have in his mind like bringing back Cap and the Torch and the sure. Samaritan and teaming them all up, had, yeah. and instead Stan Jack created entirely different characters with a version of the Torch attached. Right. But it's, you know, Avengers is much more like the Justice League. Yep. But again, yeah. where the difference right. because you've got the because of you know the first issue they're all after the Hulk. Yeah. 'Cause they think the Hulk's a menace. Yeah. And the second issue, they're all after the Hulk. Yeah. And because the Space Bantam's impersonating him and the Hulk gets mad and by mm-hmm. the third issue the Hulk is t- up with Samara is teamed up with Samaritan against them. Yep. And so again you have this sort of sense of dysfunction. It's not like the Justice League where everybody's pals. Mm-hmm. And it's a, and actually the Avengers movie took this much farther mm-hmm. because I think that when Stan Jack did the Avengers comic, again it's like why wouldn't Thor and Iron Man and Ant Man get along? Because they're all scholar heroes. Mm-hmm. So it's a, whereas by the Avengers movie, I mean, Joss Whedon took it farther by saying, mm-hmm. "Well, none of these guys would have gotten along at yeah, first. Right. and we have to show how they come bring brought together. Yeah, yeah. that's expanding. I mean, this is something you will see in the early years at Marvel, where you know Stan is, and company are coming up with these new ideas, and they're not all. They don't always have them quite worked out yet, mm-hmm. and. They're evolving over the course of the 60s, but they but they get they get what we think of as the Marvel star really fast. Right.
1: Now, just like the Hulk, the X-Men were not a breakaway success at first. No. They would, you know, it, it would actually probably take them longer than the Hulk to catch yes. on. But the interesting thing about the X-Men is, even though the book itself was not a breakout success, immediately they started introducing concepts before they even revamped, you know, a decade later and figured out... Right off the bat, you have concepts. The idea of the mutant, um, which would become crucial to the Marvel universe. Um, the introduction of Magneto. These larger, I don't even know if they intended it at the time, the, the racial overtones, the civil rights overtones, no. which really came later. Oh,
3: no. no, not that no. much later. Well, that, that, this is an interesting, well cut. You know, a lot of the characters, early characters, are getting their powers from radiation mm-hmm. because, again, much in the news at that time. Uh, it's a science fiction trope of the period, mm-hmm. and so it's that, that Stan comes up with the idea of mutants—not—not—not not, not that big a surprise. Right. It, is, again shows how he and Jack are—they are putting a twist on the kid sidekick thing. Now it's a school—a school for superheroes, a school for mutants—and mm. you've got—but um, again, they're the X-Men. Mm. Even though one of them is marvel yeah, girl, but they' they're not that enlightened yet but it's uh, but again, it's like you know Professor X stays home yeah. at the school and he sends the X men out, but they are a team right. and they have responsibility as if they were adults, they're not kids sidekicks mm-hmm. but in terms of the the racial implications to mutants i mean when if you look at the first issue it's it's like okay. Magneto is the mutant who's gone bad, who's out for power. Right. And the army actually cooperates with the X-Men. Oh, we're glad you're helping us out in fighting Magneto. This would change really fast Mm -hmm. because it's not not that many issues later that, for example, you get a scene where Professor X and Magneto's astral forms are talking to each other, and they're basically having a debate as to how mutants... What the role of mutants is in the world, because yeah. Professor X wants co- peaceful coexistence between mutants and other humans, mm-hmm. and Nino says no the only way we can guarantee rights is by taking them by f- is by taking over right. by taking taking troll and you see already what other people are going to identify as yeah. this parallel between you know the Martin Luther King and Malcolm right. Malcolm X by any means necessary it 's right. like whether Stan was th- and Jack were thinking of this at the time, who knows? Right. But it's it's in the air, and they're tap- again. They're tapping into the zeitgeist, right. and you've g- and pretty soon you're getting the, you know, like I remember a scene where uh, Hank Hank McCoy, uh, you know, how he is sort of staggering into the X Men mansion because he's just in a fight before, mm-hmm. because all from from this anti mutant mob, mm-hmm. and by the time you get to the Sentinels, yeah. Now, the Sentinels, I mean, that, that is that is Bolivar Trask, their inventor, preaching against what he sees as this racial menace. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that the Sentinel robots always, have always looked to me like, oh, for a long time have looked to me like, as if they're sort of like Jack's concept of Nazi stormtroopers mm-hmm. as gigantic robots.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's like, by that time, Stan and Jack clearly knew what they were doing. Right. And you know now when Chris Claremont comes along, you know in the late in the later '70s, he, he really runs he really it. runs with this. Yeah. But it's like it is there in the Stan and Jack stories. Yeah, it's not there at the very beginning, but they develop it very very quickly.
1: Right. I Want to jump ahead a little, a couple of years to '66, 1966. Now a lot of a lot of these characters are being introduced in their own books getting the shot right away, but also, still, in Fantastic Four, Stan and Jack, who stay on there for years, for over 100 issues, uh, are turning out, you know, big characters there who will spin out later, and a huge one, as far as the benchmark socially, is the Black Panther, they mm-hmm. debuted in 1966, the first major black superhero. Right. How, much, how radical was this at the time, just given what year it was, you know, putting in a little context, because those of us who think back on it today, just like, oh, of course there's there was a black hero at some point, it was just a matter of time, but at the time there were none. And at the time,
3: no at the, at the time there, there were none at the major companies, right. and it's, um, there were no precedents for it, there were it was a time when you know, the civil rights movement was really getting going in the early 60s, but there was still, but you still had you know, down south, you you had uh, po- police using violence to break up demonstrations for civil rights. You had laws in much of the country against intermarriage between the races. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, were, it was considered. You you know, you you were only first starting to get um, you know like Bill Cosby on I Spy in the early '60s characters who were. African Americans who were playing roles that were not servants
2: mm-hmm.
3: on on television at the time so that it's like this was, things were moving very quickly in the 60s and this was a, now I think Gabe Jones in Gabe Jones, Gabe Jones in Sajid Fury preceded right. him but this was, so that Stan was always interested in breaking ground, in the 60s in breaking ground in, in terms of racial variety mm-hmm. But it's like, but yes, the Black Panther was a major, major step,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and I think that I think think that from I understand, I remember one writer saying that even like several years later, though, there, there was it was sort of it was sort of controversial to try to put have an interracial romance in a Marvel comic. Mm-hmm. So that it's like, this was a very big deal.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It was a truly groundbreaking and uh, and it also is a testament of course to uh, as you say Stan and Jack with, th- coming up with all of these big ideas of course yeah you know and just introducing things as these things as supporting characters in sure. Fantastic Four like the Inhumans and the Black Panther and the Silver Surfer and Galactus that would go and the Kree and yeah. and the scrolls and uh, things that would go on to have these these big um, impacts later on in Marvel Comics yeah
1: all right, so we've talked about the heroes, mostly. Mm-hmm. Another thing that makes the Marvel Universe stand out right from the beginning is, if you looked at, you know, DC had its standout villains. Timely, really, to me, just had the, the Red, Red Skull. Skull. Uh, everyone else is kind of, you know, it's it's, it's either a, a one-shot villain, or it's just a Nazi, or it's a saboteur, or something like this. We mm,
3: there, the, there are a few, but not right.
1: No one quite, I mean, yeah. Bear and, and
3: in the Submarinus series is a pretty sure. bad guy, but again, he's not so of this grand yeah, supervillain. villain. and
1: either. there's people who would be, you know, kind of get more exposure later with Invaders and things yeah. like that where they revisit. But for the most part, you know, Red Skull is the iconic villain of the timely era. Right off the bat, within the first two years of Marvel Universe, you have Doctor Doom and Fantastic Four. You have... Variety of Spider Man villains, a great rogues gallery. You get Magneto, who becomes, you know, very, arguably early on, Magneto was more memorable than the X-Men. Um, you have Loki over in Thor, who to this day is enjoying a surge in popularity. Um, all across the Mandarin and Iron Man, a lot of great villains, and villains who would endure, who mm-hmm. would come back, who would switch off, like you talked about. So, how was. Stan, Jack, Steve, all these guys approached the villains different in the 60s than it had been only a couple decades earlier.
3: That is interesting because, mm-hmm. as, you, as, but, because as you say, Timely did not have a lot of great okay. supervillains. I, I
1: don't know if part of that is just that they had kind of the they had the World War II thing to lean back
3: on. But there were supervillains right. over at DC at yeah, yeah, that yeah. time, Definitely. so that and of course Batman was building a, a tremendous rogues' gallery sure. right from 1940 yeah, on. Yeah, very early on. And it's like, um, or even earlier than that if you count Professor Hugo Strange. But 1940 mm-hmm. is a, jo- you know, but Joker and Catwoman are on Batman number one in 1940. Yes. But um, you do have now, but when you think of a DC villain in the 60s. Mm-hmm. They're mostly costumed thieves. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know whether it's the Joker and the Penguin or whether it's Captain Cold and the Mirror Master. Um, and it seems to me that, th- and you have some of this now. It seems now it seems like um, in Spider Man, you had um, it was that's more like a costumed thieves, Rogues Gallery, right? But seems that uh, again this is tapping in tapping into myth again you know Stan has a hero who 's named after an animal a spider man mm-hmm. character with spidery powers and a lot of the early spider man villains have these animal motifs sure. and you know it took, you know decades later J. Michael Straczynski will point out yep. you know the animal totem factor in spider man but again Stan does, Stan is probably is not thinking in terms of myth he mm-hmm. 's just hitting upon this great idea, but it seems to me that Stan, that Stan and Jack also were coming up with a different kind of villain that they were... And this has some sort of... This has a background in sort of maybe like a lot of the pulp villains, some of the guys who went up against Doc Doc Savage or The Shadow. Um, it's like, clearly, like, the Mandarin is obviously descended from Fu Manchu.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but um, they're... they're af- they hit upon these sort of grand ma- <coughs> masterminds, mm-hmm. the Doctor Doom's, the Magnitos. These characters who have a sort of regality, a certain majesty, sure. who aren't just out to rob a bank, but who want to take over the world, or have higher ambitions. Right. And this is something that you don't really see at DC. I mean, Lex Luthor wants to kill Superman, yeah. but does he really want to take over the world? Yeah. It's like, uh, not in the 60s, no, not really. It's like, um, and maybe the growing influence of the James Bond villains, Mm -hmm. especially later in the decade, it has some sort of effect on this too, but it's like, no, no, they're coming up with a different kind of villain than we're used to in superhero comics, Mm -hmm. and that is... You know, even the Justice League. I can't really think of that many who are really out to ta- take over the world as right. their primary goal.
1: Beyond just taking over the world thing, too, you also had, if you look at Red Skull and Joker as two of the examples, these guys are unrepentant, no way you can root for them at all villains. As you get to know, as they reveal more layers of Doctor Doom and Magneto, I'm thinking in particular, you start to see, even though these guys are bad guys and, you know, they are trying to take over the world, they have points of view. Uh, You know, Dr. Doom is, depending on what appearance you're reading, he might might be trying to save his mother's soul. He might be trying to look out for his country. Magneto always has the, you know, I'm trying to save the mutant race thing. Not right off the bat. Off the bat, they're Mm -hmm. really just, you know, trying to take over the world villains. But those depths get added. Sure,
3: but this is, is of course, part of Stan's grand agenda in, Mm -hmm. in general, which is, again we're introducing the fantasy element of superpowers here but otherwise they are real people right. they are multidimensional people They are in, with real problems in a real world and so and so it's Stan is it, Stan is writing the kind of comics that he wants to write and that is characters with with, dimension, dimensions to their personality to their psyche that are beyond just being a good guy and a bad guy and he's it should be no surprise that if he's coming up with these layered characterizations mm-hmm. for characters like Ben Grimm or for Peter Parker, mm-hmm. that he's going to that he eventually he's going to get around to doing this with with the supervillains too that st- that strike his interest.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And you know, and I also think that he's coming up that one of the things you see in the early 60s comics is that he wants to come up. He wants to reinvent the conventions of superheroes, of the superhero genre, but he wants to come up with reasons for it. So as you said, the FF don't have costumes at first. He usually comes up with a, so with the early issues, the early series, he comes up with reasons why these guys have costumes. Iron Man builds the costume, that gives him his powers. He needs it. I mean, it's like Daredevil has a rationale for, because he promised his father he wouldn't use his fists, so yep. he has to become a different person. Right. You know, the X-Men are wearing their school uniforms. Right. Spider-Man started out wanting to be in the show business, yep. and so that's his show biz costume he's wearing.
1: And Thor, that's just how they dress. Yeah, Thor, art. it's just how he
3: dress. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um so, with, um, so with the villains, yeah, so Stan, so, you know, Stan eventually decides, well, if, and Jack eventually decides, well, they give Dr. Doom this European background. They make him a head of state. Well, mm-hmm. what would a head of state... You know, what would, how would a head of state... Be? Who's out to conquer the world? How would that work? How would that work? And they come up with, the, um, with Magneto. They give him a reason for... One, not just, I want power, but a reason, a rationale for wanting power. Mm-hmm. So that... And... Uh, even with the Red Skull, who is as you say, purely evil, it become yeah. as you read the Stan Jack stories, when, when they bring Captain America and the Red Skull back right. you real they, they very much emphasize that this is an ideological battle between sure. them. That they these are two and here they are fully aware of the symbolism. You see this in the in the first big storyline where the Red Skull comes to the present day, the Cosmic yep. Cube storyline where these are two people who uh, represent very different systems of thought, systems of politics, systems of morality yeah. in conflict with each other. We could keep going.
1: I, uh, like I said, the 60s is a very rich time. Um, just to give you an idea of some of the stuff we haven't even hit on yet, and these are just a few characters. We haven't even, we, we've touched on some of them, but not fully talked about. Guys like Doctor Strange, Black Widow, Daredevil, Nick Fury, Hawkeye over on the Scarlet Witch, the Inhumans you mentioned briefly, S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, Captain Marvel, our Captain Marvel, the Falcon, first African-American hero. Um, and, you know, there's stuff to be said for all of them. I think we covered a lot of characters today.
3: Oh, there will be other yeah. podcasts. There
1: will be other podcasts. We will be coming back. Um, is there any final kind of thoughts you wanted to share on this era before we put it off to the side for now? Maybe touch on it again later, but uh, yeah. I, think we've, I think we've discussed some good stuff here today.
3: The 60s was a revolutionary time in American culture, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> it's, uh, if, you look, if you look at politics, if you look at civil rights for African Americans, the rise of feminism, the mm-hmm. rise of gay rights by the, t- by the end of the decade, if you look at what was happening with rock music, what was... A the, from the Beatles on yeah, yeah. if you look at the uh the rise of what was what now the contemporary lib- movement in liberal politics at that time, you look mm-hmm. at the Kennedys you look at you look at changes in fashion mm-hmm. you look at you know look at at the beginning of the sixties it's for those of you who watch Batman, that's mm-hmm. what it looked like yep. by the end of the sixties that's what it looked like Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> huge change- a change in comedy, yeah you know'cause you get because you've got you know beginning of the 60s, you've got, like, Nichols and May and Woody Allen. I sort of relate Stan's sense of comedy with Spider-Man to that Mm -hmm. period, and by the end, you've got Monty Python. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, and you've got, you know, and we're heading towards, we've got Second City, which is going to turn into Saturday Night Live Mm -hmm. in the next decade. It is this amazing period, revolutionary period, in all these aspects of culture, and I really don't think, even with the big changes that we've had since, like the computer revolution, I really don't think... I think this is like one of the biggest changes, cultural changes in American history since maybe like the 20s. And, you know, nothing is... There hasn't been this sort of huge generational shift since then because actually I've noticed boomers are really good at adopting new computer technology and stuff. (laughs) Um, So that we're all over Facebook. So (laughs) it's... uh, So, and Stan and Jack and Steve Ditko and the other people they worked with, they were part of this period. They mm-hmm. are part of this revolution. They are part of this cultural shift in America that still affects our culture and world culture today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I recently po- saw and posted on my Facebook page a picture of St- uh, which looks like a recent picture of Stanley posing with Paul McCartney. And wow. yes,
2: yeah.
3: and McCartney wrote... wrote Wrote a song called "Magneto and the Titanium yep. Man" way back then, yeah. decades ago. So it's like it is, it is part of this cultural revolution, at this is the magic time mm-hmm. in it, at Marvel and in comics. Yeah. And if it wasn't for and if it wasn't for this period at Marvel, I don't think we would have superhero comics today, much less the movies.
1: It's yeah. well, a good way to sum it up. It's a good way to leave it off. Peter, of course, thank you for joining us again, and Peter will be back. I hope. Oh, of course. All right. You'll keep coming back because we still got more. We got a lot more ground to cover. We're going to get into the 70s next time, which is a very interesting time. Uh, But until then, guys, please send us any questions or comments you have. Use the hashtags on Twitter This Week in Marvel. Use the hashtag Marvel75. Keep looking out at Marvel.com slash 75 for all the content we've been putting out. And we'll talk to you soon. This is Marvel, your universe.